Almighty. Thank you, Miss Antonia. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. We will be beginning and ending in verse 18 for today. There is plenty here. In many ways, we could spend a whole semester's worth of sermons in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, but We'll spend the next two weeks. Today we'll look at verse 18 alone, and then next week we'll look at verses 18 through 25. And as you open up to Romans 8, looking at verse 18, you're going to quickly see a word that we'd rather not hear. And while it's a word we'd rather not hear, more than that, it's a reality that we would rather not experience. But all of us, every single one of us, have either come out of a season of suffering, in a season of suffering now, or we are headed in the near or long term into a season of suffering. When it comes to suffering, it feels like it's never the right time to talk about it, and yet it's always a crucial time to talk about it. And the world doesn't know what to do with suffering, and many times we don't really know what to do with suffering either. There are sufferings that are hard to hide, but then there are also hidden sufferings what the old theologians used to call the maladies of the soul. There are some of our sufferings that are very, very hard to disguise, but then there are others that are easier. So even as we gather in here today, there are people that you might be gathering alongside, and you might be thinking, well, it seems like everything's good with them, and yet there is an ache in their heart. There may be an ache in their bones, There might be something physically wrong that is hidden from your sight, or more often there might be something that just feels out of sorts in a heart or a mind, in the soul. Now, there are whole philosophies that exist in order to try to cope with the reality of suffering in life. In the FORGE program, which is our year-long theological discipleship program, we talk through false stories. And let me tell you something, every false story out there has to give an account for what suffering is and how to make sense of it. You hear about individualist accounts of suffering, that suffering is really about a failure of personal responsibility. There are cynical accounts of suffering. Well, suffering is inevitable and you should just get used to it. There are progressive accounts of suffering, that suffering can really be remedied or solved by an advance in education or health or wealth distribution. There are stoic views of suffering. Suffering is a natural part of life and is crucial for maturation, for getting stronger and tougher. There are all sorts of philosophies that try to give an account of suffering. But it's not just philosophies. It's not just false stories. Every religion tries to make sense of it as well. We live in a city with a very vibrant Buddhist community. Do you know what the first noble truth of Buddhism is? Dhaka. Life is suffering. The Buddhist response to suffering is accept it. Resign yourself to its inevitability and it will lose its power over you. And yet, is it possible? Is it possible? Is it imaginable? Is it believable that the days of suffering might end? Well, the Christian hope is rooted not in the inevitability of suffering, Not in the moral maxim to just get stronger, better, tougher, faster, so that you can endure suffering for longer through a force of the will. The Christian hope is to trust that God is well acquainted with our sorrows and is bringing an end to our suffering. 
and not just ours, but that of the world's. Romans so far has laid out how suffering has emerged. In Romans 1 through 3, suffering has entered the world not because of God's abdication of his responsibilities or God's failure to imagine a better version of it because of humanity's rebellion against God. Suffering hasn't entered the world arbitrarily. It's not just here coincidentally. Suffering has entered the world because humanity said to God's kingdom, we don't want that. We want our own kingdom. And with humanity's rule and reign came ripple effects of brokenness and rupture in the human life and throughout the natural world. Suffering is a result of brokenness, of idolatry, of identity, of immorality. Sin did not just fracture souls, it fractured the world and all manner of suffering has grown from the rotten fruit of sin's impact on the world. But that's not all that Paul says in Romans 1 through 3. Getting into verses, chapters 4 and 5, he begins to talk about how God is going to intervene in order to provide the righteousness we need. In Romans 6 and 7 is a detailed description of the battle of trying to live righteous lives in a broken world. And then when we got to Romans 8, we began to kind of have a little bit of wind in our sails. There, there was a kind of a freedom that Romans 8 begins to encourage us, and that freedom is rooted in Christ Jesus, that we can experience grace and justification, that we can be freed from condemnation, we can be adopted into God's family in Christ Jesus. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates the argument of his listeners, the argument of his audience, that those who might be hearing about this great rescue that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, that they might go, yes, I understand that that's what's coming, but what about the sorrows of now? What about the sufferings of the present? And that's a very reasonable thing for somebody in the church in Rome to ask. Why? Because they were enduring suffering. They were a persecuted minority and they were among and from groups of people, either Israelites or Christians, who had known suffering for a long time and in many different ways and in many different cultures. And so it begins to become clear that Paul is not just addressing our forever hope, he's addressing our present reality by helping us to look towards the future. And in verse 18, he shifts focus. He shifts focus not just to what God has done, but what God is going to do. And it puts us in attention. It puts us in attention that we have to remain in if we are to remain faithful to the witness of Scripture and faithful to the life of God in Jesus. And that tension is Romans 8, verse 18. So I'm going to read it. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond with thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. We want to give thanks for his word. So I'll read Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, it's hard to talk about suffering anytime. No one wants to hear about it. No one wants to think about it. But we desperately have to talk about suffering with all the lights are on so that when all the lights go off, we know what truth to stand on. 
We have to talk about it. And it's doubly difficult as a pastor to preach to people that you know about suffering. Because when I see so many of your faces, I can think about the days of suffering. Some of them are very fresh for you. I, for the, the whole of my life in ministry, I looked forward to preaching Romans 8, and, and I still do. I've loved it. I've loved every second of it. But the 23-year-old seminary whippersnapper doing youth ministry in East Texas could not have imagined the ache of a pastor's heart when he must preach on suffering. I couldn't have weighed it. Because I know that it's not abstract for any of us, and for some of you, it's concrete today. So I just want you to know that I feel that. And that the truth that I offer you today is... It's not truth unacquainted with the intimacy of your sorrow. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there are so much in so few words. Paul says, for I consider, he, he, he's telling them, I'm well acquainted with suffering. He's speaking from his own experience here. It's almost as if Paul is approaching the church in Rome and he's saying, I know what it's like. And I know how what I'm about to say, I know what that sounds like. I know that it can sound removed, but Paul has experienced suffering firsthand. Paul saw and experienced shipwrecks. Paul was imprisoned. Paul saw friends killed for their Christian faith. Paul experienced betrayal. Paul was isolated and alienated. Paul was eventually martyred for his faith. Paul, throughout his ministry, he tells you he's praying that there is a thorn in his flesh, not a physical thorn. There is something, some sort of besetting, recurring, habitual suffering that Paul knows, and he tells you about his ministry. I keep asking God to take it away, and he hasn't yet. Paul knows sorrow. Paul knows suffering. He wants his audience to know that he stands before them, not detached from their suffering, and not detached from his own. And it's almost as if when he says, for I consider, the word here is like reason. For I reason, or I calculate. And, and the language here, it almost implies like Paul is jogging out to the horizon of heaven. He's running ahead of the church in Rome. He's running ahead of us on our journey with Jesus. And he's saying, if we saw life now in light of what is coming we would see our present sorrows and sufferings with more clarity. For I consider this, it's almost as if, as if Paul has journeyed up the side of a steep mountain and he's seen the incredible view and it's almost like he's coming back down to us who are weary and heavy laden, those of us who are struggling to just make the next step and he's coming alongside us and he's saying, listen, I can tell you what's coming and it's worth it. It's more beautiful than you could imagine. It's more glorious than you could hope. But the sufferings of the present moment can feel incredibly heavy. What are these sufferings? 
What are these sufferings? Well, the word is broad. The word is broad, and while Paul will give it some specificity in the verses that follow, this word is broad, and it can include, and certainly is not limited to any of these things, suffering as the effects of sin on us, that sin has impacted us. Shame is a kind of impact of sin. It is a malady of the soul. We suffer under the weight of shame. The impacts of sin, of living in a sin-sick world. Suffering includes the effects of living in a sin-sick world. Isolation, loneliness, despair, discouragement, injury, offense, heartache, heartbreak. These are effects of living in a sin-sick world. These are sufferings. There are also the sufferings that include the persecution for bearing witness to the truth of Christ. There is the opposition that comes with living righteously. And while in Paul's day, much of that opposition was experienced in very kind of firsthand, direct ways, and there are many places in the global church where that opposition still remains, where it's not an abstract concept, where it's not merely spiritual opposition, but it is physical opposition that is persecuting the church of God in Christ Jesus. And while many of us do not experience that kind of opposition here yet, we do need to understand that we do experience a spiritual opposition from a great enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's, I know that's a, uh, maybe harder to quantify. It's harder to see, but it is the real war. It is the real battle. And its invisibility to us is not a judgment on its materiality to God because it is substantive. We experience persecution even if we don't experience it in the ways that the church in Rome would have then or that the church in Turkey or China or Pakistan experience it, is it now. These sufferings, these sufferings are of the present time. Of the present time. What's the present time? Was it just when Paul wrote these words? Is it just now or is it the sufferings of the present time? Does it remain eternally or forever present? No, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about an age. He's talking about a period of time. He's talking about an era in the history of the world. And do you know what that era is? It is between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. This present time, what Paul and other places might call the present evil age... In this period of time, we are caught between the already and the not yet. The time we live in now, it is the time where we are stuck between what Christ has done and what he is coming again to do. What God has begun and what he is going to finish in the new heavens and the new earth. The sufferings of this present time are real sufferings. They're sufferings that we experience really. They're not immaterial sufferings. They are real sufferings that we experience in our real bodies in real time. And this present time is marked in a way by the waiting and the hoping and the longing that maybe, just maybe, these sufferings will come to an end. The sufferings of this present age and time, disease, Opposition to walking in righteousness, injustice parading as right, lies parading as truth, exploitation, hurt and heartache, break, broken hearts, despair and loneliness. 
These are maladies of the present moment. They are evils of the present age. And when we are enduring any experience of trial, when we are enduring experiences of sorrow and of suffering, it feels as if if it will never end. Have you ever been in a season of affliction? Have you been in a season of deep grief or loss? Have you been in a season of suffering? When you are there, it feels like that is how it will be forever. It feels like you're going to get stuck there. Suffering feels like quicksand. It feels like the more you try to jump out of it, the faster it pulls you down. Suffering feels like the thing that's almost like the more you try to touch it, the more you try to pull away from it, the more it feels like it sticks and stains your soul. When we are caught up in loss and in heartache and in sorrow and in despair and in suffering, be it physical, emotional, spiritual, or all at once, when we find these things among us, it feels like it will go on forever. It does not feel like it is a suffering of the present time. It feels like we are stuck in a new normal that we don't want to be in forever. And Paul is not unaccustomed with this kind of suffering. You know, I read this quote a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing for this sermon, and it bothered me. It's from, a, from Teresa of Avila, theologian in the life of the church. She says this, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And I know what she means. And I bet she's right. But it is very hard to see from the perspective of heaven. It is very hard to see our moments from the perspective of forever. And if you've been there, you know. And if you haven't been there, you'll learn that there are times in which it does not feel like one long night of the soul. It feels like a forever night. It feels like a night that won't lift. You believe that new mercies are coming every morning. It just, you're not so sure there's another morning coming. You're not so sure that the dawn is going to break, that the clouds are going to lift. It is hard to hope when you hurt. There's so much hurt. There's so much hurt out there. There's so much hurt in here. And some of us have endured a long night. Some of us are there now. And Paul is inviting us to turn our eyes towards something else. But I think we'd be remiss to not acknowledge that it is incredibly difficult to do that. It's nearly impossible to do it alone. And it is always a miracle of God's intervention in our lives when it happens. You know, these last four years, this, not coincidentally, but according to the calendar, is our four-year anniversary of Mosaic's launch. And I'm so tremendously grateful for what God has done in the life of our church. But it has not been without sorrow. The road has not been one 
that has been easy. We have been recipients of tremendous blessings from God, and for that we are grateful. And God is right to be given thanks to and praised for all of his generosity and blessing. But we have known heartache. We have known sorrow. This is the road of walking with the Lord Jesus. It's not a road that is always marked by good in the moment. But it is a road that's headed towards glory forever. And I can't tell where we're at in our journey. I'm not some sort of like futurist. I don't know what the next four years will hold. I'll tell you, much of what the last four years held defied my wildest imagination. So I can't imagine what the next four years are. I pray it's an incredible harvest of righteousness. I pray that we will know more blessings than burdens, that we will know more lives than deaths. But I know the world that we're living in. I know the tension that we're caught up in. And the great hope for us as individuals and for us as a church isn't that things for the next four years will be better than they have been the last four. The hope for the Christian and the hope for our church is that even if the next four years are worse than the last four, forever is coming and forever is glorious. We don't measure our years in better and worse values. We measure them against the coming kingdom And it is so incredibly difficult to remember that the coming kingdom is not one of grief, but one of glory. Look at how Paul finishes verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is this glory? What is the glory that can heal a broken heart? What is the glory that can overturn the sorrows of the world? What is the glory that can mend the broken places of suffering? What is this glory? It is nothing less than the coming day of the Lord. It is an event that we are headed to. It is a moment that we are headed to, and it is a moment that will lead to forever. This glory is the restoration of what was promised. This glory is the complete establishment of God's kingdom. This glory is the full enjoyment of God's promises. This glory is the end of all the sad things and sufferings of this world. This glory is nothing short of full restoration of creation, including the full restoration of you and I in our entirety, the full restoration and remaking of the whole person, the remaking of the whole world. And Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with this glory. This glory. This phrase that Paul uses, the Greek phrase, not worth comparing. In the Greek, it was fairly common. This is a marketplace term. This is a I'm buying my groceries for today term in the Greek world. And it can be translated as not worth as much. Not worth as much. Paul's saying this glory that is coming, it's of such incredible worth. It's of such incredible value. It's of such incredible majesty. It's 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 of such incredible depth that if you compare the full weight of all the sufferings of the world and the people in it, 
this glory would outweigh it. This glory would outweigh it. One day, the sufferings that mark our lives will seem as if they are vapors, like a fog that dissipates when the sun rises. It would be as if, um, it was as, it would be as if you, you went to somebody who was weighing out gold, and they wouldn't even wipe the dust off the scale before they weighed the gold. That is what our sufferings will be like in light of the hope of heaven. Fully realize it'll be like the dust on a scale. It will be inestimable. It won't even calculate as we see our present now in light of the hope of heaven then. But we're stuck. We're stuck. We're stuck looking and just imagining that day, hoping against hope that it is coming and coming soon. You know, I, we had a prayer night last week on Sunday night. And I, 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 I was in a, I've had these moments in the last year where it just feels like despair and discouragement just sweep through like a tornado it's almost like I can't even see it coming, and then it's there, and it's, whew, it's destroying everything. And I came to service on Sunday morning last week, and it, I felt, okay, I, man, there's a sweetness to worship. But sometime between noon and 4 p.m., that tornado blew through. And despair that had not been on the horizon before was now all I could see. And I sat right back there in the back of this room. And when everyone else was singing, we're supposed to be praying, I just argued with God for 80 minutes. I, I tried to get up and sing. Multiple times I tried to stand up and sing. And I couldn't squeeze out any words. I, I just, there was such incredible despair and discouragement in my heart. And I wrestled with the Lord. And do you know when the cloud lifted that night? It didn't. And I woke up the next day, and it was still there. And I woke up the next day, and it was still there. And I woke up the next day, and it was still there. I was asking God, God, help me see today in light of what's coming in the far future, and I couldn't see it. I wanted to. I really did. I wanted to see it. I wanted to believe it, and yet my heart felt so thin on belief. I wanted just a glimpse of the glory to remind myself that this wasn't how it was going to be always. But it felt that way. You know, I, I think there are times in which we come to the Lord and we ask him, God, would you remove from me this cup of sorrow? And what it's hard for us to believe is that there are times when God says, not yet. I know it's easy to think that the promise of the Christian faith 
is that God is going to take away all the bad things that come your way, but that is not the truth of the story. There are times in which the sorrows of the heart are trying, they're being purposed by God to deepen our desire for something that nothing this side of heaven will satisfy. The sufferings of this present time are valuable and they're hard because they deepen our hope and desire for a day when they will be brought to their end, a day when the glory is to be revealed to us. This is a coming day. It is a day of glory. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. This glory already exists. It already exists. This glory isn't going to be manufactured. This glory is going to be revealed. The glory is already there. We just have a hard time seeing it, especially in seasons of suffering. This glory is already here. We're waiting for the revelation of it in fullness. We get glimpses of it. It's almost like drinking something incredible, but drinking it from thimbles. One day, it will not be measured out to us in small cups. It will be measured out in oceans. In oceans, unfathomable, inexhaustible, powerful beyond compare. The glory is coming, and yet for now, it can seem that suffering is at the same time inconceivable and inevitable. When we experience suffering, it simultaneously feels like, of course, and how could you? And yet there is hope for us. It's hard to imagine this hope. It's hard to imagine that someone will heal and redeem our present sufferings and sorrows. It's hard to imagine a time where grief is gone for good. And we stand in a time in which it is hard to hope because of the abundance of hurt. We stand in a time between the already and the not yet, praying and asking and hoping for God to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask, think, or pray. And in all of this, glory is coming. The day of our restoration is coming. It's closer than we could possibly imagine. There is a glorious kingdom that is coming, and it is brought by a king of glory, and he is bringing it, and it's going to outweigh all the whole of the suffering that the world has endured. It is going to unmake all of the evil. It is going to mend all of the broken. To quote Tolkien, it is going to make all the sad things come untrue. One of the best books I've read this last year is by an author named Daniel Nayari. It's an autobiography, a memoir called Everything Sad is Untrue. He's riffing off of that Tolkien quote that I just gave you. And it's not just me that loves this book. Everyone loves this book. Amazon said it was their book of the year, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NPR. It's won a ton of awards. It's the story of a young Iranian refugee's family who fled from Iran to Oklahoma due to religious persecution. Christian family from Iran who ends up in Oklahoma. It's an unbelievable story. I cannot recommend it more highly to you. And at one point, the author reflects. He says this, what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. 
The line comes while he's reflecting on the life of his mother, who has endured incredible persecution, who now endures incredible ostracization and alienation in a state and a country that is not ordinary for her, trying to learn a language that is foreign to her, trying to raise her kids in the face of all kinds of uncertainty. And yet her endurance, her perseverance, and her hope is compelled by something. And do you know what it is? It's the hope of the coming glory. I can't preach on the hope of glory without giving you a taste of it. Without giving you a taste of what Paul is talking about. In Revelation 21, 1 through 5, we get more than a taste. We get a feast. An incredible picture of what God is promising us. An incredible picture of the coming glory that will outweigh our sufferings. This is what John writes in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is the day that is coming for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the day of glory. This is the glory that is coming. As hard as it is to believe now, this glory is coming. And this glory is going to remake you and I and the whole of the world. And we wait for it. And I know that the waiting is hard. And I know that some of you feel like you're not in a long night of the soul. You are in a long life. You are in the dark night of life. And you've been there for a long time. And let me tell you something. I cannot promise you that the new morning mercies are coming tomorrow, but I can promise you they are coming. I cannot tell you that the dawn that breaks the darkness is coming in a month or a year or 10 years from now, but I can tell you it is coming. I cannot tell you that the hurts that you know now will be fully healed this side of heaven, but I can tell you the healing is coming. I can't tell you that the freedom from the chains of addiction and besetting sin are coming before the chain breaker comes in glory. But I can tell you, freedom is coming. It's more than a hope, it's a certainty. And I'm not certain because of my confidence or my own perseverance in suffering. I'm certain because there was a king who surrendered the glories of heaven to take upon him the sorrow, the sin, and the suffering of the world. And that the glory that is coming in the future is ours because of the glory that was surrendered in the past. King Jesus has come, and he has taken upon himself the sufferings of the world, and he is bringing with him in the new morning a glories of the world to come. And every week we remember that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We come before you, and we ask, God, that you would give us hope even in the face of hopelessness and 
trust even in the face of discouragement and despair that while we know too well the sorrows and the sufferings of this present time, we pray, God, that you would hold our hearts with gentleness as we wait for the coming glory. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit.